everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Julia Brown, your familiar stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Schools of Culture, History and Language and Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University and the Australian Centre for Public Awareness of Science. I'm recording this at the new recording studio at the Centre of Public Awareness of Science. They're setting up kind of an incubator here and we're delighted, nervous and excited to be part of the new crop of podcasts coming up at ANU. Today I'll be interviewing Dr. Tanisha Jowsey, who happens to be on my PhD panel. Thankfully, I wasn't too intimidated as her conversational style put me at ease. So Dr. Tanisha Jowsey is an applied medical anthropologist at the University of Auckland School of Medicine. In this interview, Tanisha takes us into the operating theatre, exploring interactions between medical technologies and people, the communication between medical tribes, and how to keep everyone involved, including herself, focused on patients. All of this is geared towards changing the culture of the hospital to improve patient outcomes. Just a few guide ropes for the terms we use. Tanisha talks about simulations. That's when Tanisha stages realistic medical situations to give doctors practice. When she talks about fidelity here, she means how close that simulation is to real life. Secondly, habitus. In a nutshell, that refers to how people inhabit the world through their bodily dispositions and social attitudes. An anthropologist understands that this might be subconscious. For example, Tanisha refers to the habitus of the anaesthetist. This implies that the way he conducts himself has become reflexive or habitual, and he's not aware of it. It's a word that has been adopted as well by the medical profession, but their emphasis is more on physical attributes pertaining to health risks, such as noting that a patient is overweight and therefore at risk of heart disease or something like that. Anyway, here it is, my interview with Dr. Tanisha Jowsey. Tanisha, welcome. Thank you. Kia ora. It's lovely to be here. Now, if you could just start by telling us what it is that you do as an applied medical anthropologist working in medical education. Sure. So I'm based at the University of Auckland and I'm actually in the hospital. I'm based in the hospital. My office is there. But I'm based in the Centre for Medical and Health Sciences Education. So we have a very strong emphasis on education within medicine, both to postgraduate, undergraduate, clinicians. The other side of my job is that I do research projects and I work as the (laughs) sole (laughs) qualitative specialist within our school. So that means that I'm brought in to advise on lots of different projects. One project that I'm working on is looking at how we can facilitate communication change in the operating theatre. So this is an area that I work in quite a lot. So I've got about four or five different research projects that I work on that are all looking at communication, but it's all different aspects of communication in the operating room. So give us an example of one aspect of communication. Well, it's fascinating because Mm. um, so one, one aspect is what they call closed loop communication. And that means rather than saying, have we got an airway 
Say to the anaesthetist, right, Mm. um, Jim, have you got an airway yet? I need an airway, Jim. Can you please get an airway? Jim says, yes, I'm working on that. I've stabilized it now. We're good to go. Right, so he's closing the loop. So I'm actually specifying to the person who I'm talking to. I'm talking to you and not someone else in the room, Jim. And I, I need to know where we're at in your process. And then he's giving me that immediate feedback to say, yes, I'm working on that. I acknowledge that you've just asked for that, and now I've completed the task, and now we've got an airway stable. Mm. Right. So just that tiny little moment. Yeah. Um, it takes the vagueness out of, you know, like when you're in panic mode and you can just say, look, we need an airway and you're saying it to the room and the whole room knows we need an airway. But who's actually working on that airway? Because we might have people who are also working on mm. the, the drugs or something. That's really interesting. So you're getting people to be more uh, targeted Structured. and we're structuring but, communication. Yes. Which is something that anthropologists otherwise would struggle with right like we're very well yeah we tend to look at communication in in terms of linguistics or we look at it in terms of discourse Mm. we look at communication in terms of flows of power and hierarchy and uh, Laurelie Lingard has done some work around silence in the operating theatre what's not said when people get the chance to speak up and those are the kinds of anthropological things that I love to geek out on yeah right where I'm just sitting there going oh wow junior staff or look at the med medical students in the operating room they're there to watch and observe and try really hard not to get in the way Mm. (laughs) which is really hard to do because I've been there and I know exactly how hard it is you just feel like ah ah, can I stand here no okay I can't stand there either oh oh, right yep sorry Uh, yep you need that thing right let me get out of your way and so you're constantly trying to find where your space is and try to be a fly on the wall yes um but what happens when as a medical student you notice oh I think that operation is for the left lung but they've marked the right lung. And that happens. Mm. It does happen. Um, happened recently in Boston, and it happens like every year around the world in leading um, universities, teaching universities, surgical hospitals. A startling number of incidents do occur. So what does this mean for us anthropologically? Mm. You know, So you do have those silences from people who are lower in the hierarchy, like medical students or house doctors. Basically, if you're not the consultant, and there's always someone above you mm. who whose opinion probably weighs more, and it makes you wonder, oh, of course, of course, the consultant knows that it's the left lung, right? Of course, they know that it's left side. So the paperwork must be wrong, or I must have read it wrong, or what would I know? I'm just a student. I'm just an observer. I'm just a whatever. I'm new to this facility. Yes, mm. I'm a scrub nurse, but I've only been here for five seconds. I don't even know the surgeon's name. Um, you know, So all of those things influence what we will say and how we can say it. And then what we will say next time, because yeah, if it's something that's not yeah. reacted to then... Then I imagine or how you it's learn to filter to. it out. Like, yeah. oh, well, they know what they're doing. Yeah, if they shut you down, be like, <laughs> I'm sorry, who are you? Or, no, we got this one, thanks, we're good here. Whatever is said is going to strongly influence exactly what the person is going to do when they're confronted with the same situation again. Yeah, so I'm interested in those kinds of spaces. Uh, recently worked on a paper with Simone Dennis 
and Jennifer Weller and uh, Carmen Skelton. And we worked on a paper where we used video footage of simulated operating room environment. So this is where they have a mannequin, uh, simulated uh, computerized mannequin, 3G man is what it's called. It's essentially like a robot that looks kind of like a person who's really not looking too good, actually. <laughs> like, if I actually looked like that, I think I'd probably want to see a hairdresser. But, but anyway, the the Sim Man is awesome because you can you can inject it. You can um, He can have an anaphylactic response to the drugs that you inject. You can draw blood from him. Wow. Um, yeah, you can collapse a lung at the push of a button. You can do all this uh, high-tech stuff to increase the fidelity so that the people who are in the simulation environment have a sense that it's a real... this is an operation and this is a real patient. So we tend to use... Not everyday stuff, but it is stuff that does happen. So someone comes in with a knife wound and they've still got the knife in them. Then if it was a stabbing, then we've got to think about forensics on top of the fact that it's hit an artery. You know, yeah, so right. so you've got to think about your fingerprints, um, securing the weapon, all of that stuff on top of what's going on with this person, this patient. And so we've filmed that scenario from multiple cameras within the room. And generally we will teach the operating room staff, we'll teach them, okay, we want, want you to use this particular form of communication, this structure, right? So we want you to see if you can alert someone or we want you to try and do that closed loop communication or whatever. And then they go into the scenario, something unexpected happens. Mm-hmm then they've got to try and fix the situation. And we've filmed this whole thing, and then we debrief with them afterwards and go, okay, so how was that? What happened there? And so in our analysis of the film later, we use that as our data. Rather than doing an interview with them, because they're all really, really busy and no one's got time and yada yada, um, but also because there is rich data there that mm. we can make use of. So we analyse this in terms of, in terms of how sound informs communication in the OR so it's things like the anesthetic machine is making a particular beeping noise that tells the anesthetist that the blood pressure is dropping for example right so no other people in the room might not know what that beeping sound is they might not be able to interpret that so much so we need the anesthetist to actually speak that out and say oh I've got falling blood pressure here and the anaesthetist might not actually be aware that they're doing those things because they might be second nature. Well, that yeah, point. that's that's the habitus. And, mm. But you only notice it when the machine is changed or upgraded and they change the beep. Yeah. You know, and so, so we've got this interaction between bodies and technology constantly, and especially in the simulated environment, then, you know, because your patient is simulated. So we've got all of this technology and 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 bodies and it's it's got lots of phenomenological rich stuff yeah, yeah it's very rich yeah those interactions between people it's a gaze it's a look it's somebody pointing so there's lots of that gestural communication that comes in there's the sounds with the equipment and the translation of the equipment's language into english 
And then we've also got the communication between the different, uh, what we call tribes. So that's your professions in the operating room. You've got your nursing, um, you've got your anaesthetist and anaesthetic technician, um, and then surgical. So Did you introduce that? No, concept? actually, <laughs> but my my uh, director, Jennifer Weller, has, has got some cool papers out on that. And she's all about trying to sort of create a sense of one tribe you know, like getting yeah. that teamwork. How do we facilitate teamwork in the in the operating room? How do we make sure we're all on the same page and that different teams can come together and work with each other? Like literally, I might not have ever seen you before and we walk into a theatre and we're expected to work together. But that's the nature of it because surgical teams and, you know, operating theatre teams are changing quite a lot. Yes. People don't just work at one hospital. They tend to work at multiple hospitals. So they've got to learn a different system. They've got to learn all new faces. They might not actually introduce each other. So that's one thing that informs the extent to which they communicate with each other. And it's probably not something that people think about consciously when they're moving well sometimes you do sometimes you're like I have no idea who anyone in here is <laughs> how yeah. do I ask how do I do a closed loop when I have no idea what the surgeon's name is do I just say excuse me surgeon but do, or... are things like closed loops something that students coming from outside of Auckland we can't assume be... we can't assume that they would have ever heard of this no. term or know what it is because I, I get the sense that this is quite an innovative program yeah like that you don't have a predecessor do you like are you the first applied medical anthropologists doing this stuff is it kind of a, as far as I know yeah yeah I don't know of anything like this in Australia yeah so I'm just wondering like how that will longer term if you're helping to formalize these communication systems yeah well there's been communication systems in the operating room for many years the emphasis in our training programs is around teamwork communication which is different from what often comes to us naturally is, you know, when we're in an acute situation, we get tunnel vision and we've just got to try and, you know, ah, you know, yeah. the, the, the blood pressure's dropping, you know, I've got falling sats and oh my goodness, um, what am I going to do here? But, but I actually forget to say any of that. So that's new. And I guess what's interesting and difficult is figuring out the extent to which anthropology can inform the communication that goes on in the operating room, as well as the way that we analyse the communication that is going on in the OR room. Yes. Yeah. Because I was thinking a little bit about behavioural economics, right? And what's the niche space for an anthropologist here in terms of, other than the fact that you're really working on the ground with well, people and it's they want more... cultural change. Yeah. And cultural change takes a long time. And to understand cultural change, you've got to first understand what the culture is and mm. what it is that we're driving towards. Yes. Right? So I think that is something that is valued and understood by people who are not anthropologists, right? So mm. we've got all these other people on the floor, psychologists, statisticians, health economists, um, you know, and lots of consultant clinicians mm. tend to be on these research projects that I work on. Mm. And they're all interested in establishing 
what this culture is and how can we move it in a different direction. So what is it now in terms of those silences and those powers and hierarchies and how can we move it more towards teamwork and what does team culture actually mean? What would it look like? What would we want it to look like? But can we ever get to the point where we generalise on what team culture should look like if it's quite dependent on the people we're working with? Do you hope to be able to, for instance, build a model that can be emulated elsewhere? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So how so – see, that's a huge yeah. thing for an anthropologist to be able to do. Yeah, so I work on this thing called the Surgical Safety Checklist. Right. Mm. So this guy, Atul Gawande, and some of his colleagues put together this Surgical Safety Checklist. It's been adapted by – taken forward by the World Health Organization. Right, so it's the WHO surgical safety checklist. And I work with people analysing how effective the implementation of the checklist has been towards cultural change in the operating theatre. So some of the elements in the checklist are things like introducing yourself. Mm. Right, like this is like a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Well, some places it doesn't happen at all. Yeah, you can go through your whole career without ever actually meeting anyone. Gosh. <laughs> it's fascinating, eh? But it is fascinating. So, you know, like in terms of the cultural change, sometimes a little thing, like knowing who it is you're directing your question to or your statement to, makes a big difference in terms of that power hierarchy. Knowing someone's name gives you power. Mm. You know, it affords you opportunities to communicate in a particular way that you wouldn't otherwise have. So that's anyway, so that's just one project. Yeah. But yeah, I advise on quite a few different different projects and it's been quite useful to see lots of different methods. Yeah. that are employed in the research. So it's not just interviews. Sometimes I do interviews, sometimes I do focus groups or stakeholder meetings. Sometimes we take a laptop. So one of the projects that I worked on with Kim Yates, who's an ED specialist, sorry, emergency department specialist, mm-hmm. she showed a short film. It's just a recording, of a video of her team teaching simulation In an actual emergency department, they were doing simulation training of somebody having a heart attack and the team responding to that, right? So they do the training during opening hours because the Mm -hmm. ED is always open and she showed, showed this footage to the people who are sitting in the ED to say to them, um, you know, what do you think of this? You've got the actual patient in the ED sees some clinicians suddenly run into a cubicle, right? Like they'll hear the alarm gets hit and so there's this loud beeping, there's a loud, uh, there's flashing light and some clinicians will run from the different places where they've been seeing patients. Everybody, it's a, it's a, it's a code, right? So they yeah. all run to it to see how they can help. Yeah. And the real patient is sitting there and they see this happening. They don't know if it's a real patient. They assume it is. And they don't know what the outcome is of it, right? So when we show them the film, the footage of this is the simulation that's going on, who's just seen this film, and they say, oh, well, I'd want to know that it's not a real person, Mm. right? Because that would put me at ease. 
to know that this is just simulation training. And if I knew that it was uh, for the clinicians to do that, to um, keep their skills refined and keep Mm. them up to date and everything, then I would be willing to wait an extra, I'm trying to remember how long it was, something like I'd be willing to wait an extra 10 or 20 minutes. So their expectations. Yeah can be greatly informed by simply having a bit of information around what's really going on in the training environment, which is in the emergency department environment. So, I mean, these are patients that are about to go into the theatre. So are they... They're in the emergency department. Right. They're waiting to see somebody because they have an emergency. So on top of processing their own emergency that exactly. they don't know the meaning of, exactly. they're taking in something else. Yes. Yeah. And then when you guys interviewed them. While they're in there waiting waiting, to see the doctor, yeah. I mean, it's a perfect time to test out what's going on. But, like, did that add to their anxiety, like, or confuse them? Yeah, look, I'd imagine so. It's never easy. And I guess that that takes us into the field of thinking about the ethics of research in medical um, arenas, which is quite complex and you know you have to think through a lot of different things so always it's with informed consent that we would get anybody to participate in anything and and generally that is written so verbal is not enough Mm. generally speaking in um, the areas in which I work no in the medical world generally I don't think yeah yeah and we do have to think about what the ethics are around agency agency comes up a lot like so especially how, when you're doing mental health research. Yes. So how do you uh, explain to medical students what agency is? <laughs> <laughs> well, using rapport, 1914. Uh, 2014. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, no, no, Nigel Rapport seriously has has mm. done some good stuff on agency. Absolutely. Um, so uh, rapport and Overing have got a nice definition around it, and um, it's the person's capacity to act alongside their intention to act they want to do something and they can do it that's all it is so that's what I say to to my medical students you know I'm just just keeping it real simple here you know like (laughs) does this person want to do this thing and can they do this thing Mm. right to what extent is that inhibited or facilitated supported you know it's it's those kinds of things. But what does that mean for someone who has got moderate dementia? They can have an intention to act, right? They may they want to drive their car to the mall. Do they have the capacity to drive their car to the mall? And you ask them, what does driving mean to you? Then they're going to take you back to, well, I got my license when I was 16 and the there was the war going on and there was all of... Um, lots of my friends died in car accidents over the years, but actually I've I've been a very good driver. Um, but you know, my brother has always said he will never drive because he's so scared of X Y Z. Then then that can open up a whole whole series of potentially traumatic spaces that the person can then go into. So yeah. we need to always have options to support them through that kind of space to check in that they're okay. And how do you check in? that they're okay you know and so you've got to get all of that sort of stuff past ethics before you're even allowed to talk to anyone this is all 
assuming that you do get participants. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm assuming you haven't had too much of a problem getting participants or... Has well, it... sometimes you do. Because you've also got to think, what is the incentive for this person, you know? Especially if this person is really unwell, which pretty much all of my research participants... <laughs> I did my PhD on people with chronic illness, especially people with multi-morbid chronic illness. So people who are really, really unwell and will will likely die from the illness that they have. And what is the incentive for them to talk to me? You know, like I've found myself thinking as an anthropologist, it's all very well and good that I can explore their experience and what it is to be a person with diabetes and end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But what is that person getting from that experience the opportunity to to share their experience yeah. to articulate to create meaning in relation yeah. to to be heard yeah sure it's all of that so as long as we make sure that people do get those things fulfilled but at the same time like balancing that desire to hold their experience with the need to get data on particular information or you know or to move the interview along or you know we're running Mm. out of time and we've got to get here so so finding that balance can be tricky as well yes and especially if your participants are clinicians who are between surgeries I was going to say now you've kind of moved to acute care yeah I've gone from chronic (laughs) to to literally in the operating room (laughs) once I did an interview with an anaesthetist in the operating room whilst the patient was anaesthetized. And I called him for a phone interview and he said, oh, I'm just in the surgery at the the moment, um, but we could do the interview now, it's fine. And I said, whoa, now this is one of those hot potatoes, right? Where you go, okay, I have no idea who else is in the room and what confidentiality will be going on and what he'll feel free to say or not to say. And oh my goodness, oh my goodness. So I'm starting to freak out and getting all hot in the face. And um, I said to him, well, uh, are you in a space where you'll feel free to tell me what you really think about things? Hmm. And he said, yeah, I'm the only one in here. (laughs) (laughs) Patience. <laughs> the patient's anesthetized. Don't worry, I'll let you know if he wakes up. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, that's one I haven't heard before. But okay, let's do it. So, um, you know. You don't have to worry about the patient's consent. They're technically not here for it. <laughs> I wonder I wonder what they'll remember from the, <laughs> the dearing me. They'll have like this weird dream about some interview going on while I was under. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So then how long did you get with talking to him until the patient? Uh, Nine minutes. Well, until other members of the team came in. And then I feel uncomfortable as the researcher to progress the conversation because I don't know where those boundaries of familiarity are and where, you know, it's always complicated. If you do an interview with one person, it's very different from doing an interview with a person who's in a room sharing with someone else. And it's very different from an interview with, if they're with their partner and their partner feels free to chip on in. All of those social relationships and, Mm. and other people change the landscape of what can be said. Yes. So are you ever in a real operating room while patients are being, being operated, operated on. on? So not often. And that's largely due to the fact that I started getting really nauseous. I had morning sickness. <laughs> I was going to say, was it because you... I was... Um, <laughs> it's 
like not a good look at all to throw up or faint in the operating room. Like, it's well, you just, wouldn't be blamed really, if you did having not. But had it's the inconvenient, training. you know. Mm. Like the <laughs> the whole team are there for the patient, not for that blasted anthropologist who's fainted on the floor. <laughs> right in front of what? the emergency exit. Good one, T. <laughs> oh, no. So, yeah, so it is a very odd. It really does make you realise, like, this, like, yes, it's in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm a Kiwi. I'm a Pakeha. This is my, this is my home. I'm doing backyard research. Mm. And yet the operating room is an entirely foreign space. I yeah. have no idea what the culture is. I'm not in the hierarchy. I don't even know where I fit in the hierarchy because mm. I'm not a nurse. I don't have uh, the clinical expertise. And people often look at me sideways. And often people make assumptions. Like they'll look at me and be say, oh, you're a surgeon, aren't you? And I think, oh, thank God they thought I was a surgeon and not the cleaner. <laughs> But no, I'm neither. <laughs> I'm entirely useless on both fronts. <laughs> so, and then you try and explain what you are as an anthropologist. Yeah, and yeah. And they've already switched confused. off and, and moved on to the next case. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's a weird thing where you don't know where to stand. Yeah. Um, you don't know what to wear and how to wear it. Nobody teaches you these no, things. No. So it's trial and error. You've got to figure out you're in foreign space and it's very time compressed yeah. and things can change radically really quickly. Do you think your openness to ex almost expecting anything given your anthropological training where we, you know, we have yeah. to be open-minded helps or did you feel like you should have had some I think the most useful thing sort. to me is the fact that I don't fit yeah right so I'm curious yes and I ask people questions that other people would feel that they couldn't ask because I'm an outsider and they they know I'm an outsider then I can ask those curious questions if I was a nursing researcher interviewing an anaesthetist there'd be a lot of assumed knowledge yeah Right, the nurse is expected to know what an INR is, but the What's anthropologist isn't. <laughs> How the heck do I know? I'm an anthropologist. <laughs> you know, I go into a neuro case where someone's got a brain bleed with an actual patient. Yeah. And how do you go with blood? That's fine. Okay. So, if I'm not pregnant, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but anyway, they'll they'll put up the charts, um, so the X-rays of the brain will be up there, and you can see the blood on the brain, and they'll say, oh, look at all the blood on the brain, and and see how it's atrophied on the left or something, and I can say, oh, what does atrophy mean? Oh, it just mm. means it's shrunk. Oh, okay, cool. But if the nurse had said, or if the anaesthetist or the surgeon had said, yeah. what does atrophy mean, or how can you tell that that's a bleed and not just part of the brain, you know, if you ask something that is a d otherwise a dumb question, but because you're outside, they give you some information that actually tells you about the culture. It tells you about the habitus that they're in. You know, it tells you all about oh, so many things around Foucault and power and 
It's all around the assumed knowledge. As we become more emic, we assume more knowledges and create this world of our own, this culture, these ideologies, these beliefs, these communications and languages of and our own. We just own. don't stop and, and think about what and they don't mean even realize exactly. Yeah. So, so part of my role with teaching the medical students is to get them to peel back the enculturation that they're in. Yeah. To be able to relate with patients. Right, like remember before you were a med student, what it actually meant to be the person sitting with your dying grandmother. Right, talk to me as though you're talking to yourself when you were that person, yeah. not as though you're someone who's about to be a doctor in a minute. And so that's really important to be able to pull them back. And I think that's something that, as an anthropologist, that's part of my role is to be able to see where those boundaries are, what it means to be a doctor, and what it means to not be a doctor within the context of knowing that there's always that power differential between a doctor and a patient. So I'm just wondering how you might have yourself uh, developed a new habitus in the sense that you don't realise how desensitised you've become to body parts and blood and, you know, things to me that would be quite confronting if I was to walk into your job role like how do you make sure you stay sensitized I suppose I still am very sensitive to it so the way that I I don't know if it's keep that sensitivity or keep a note of where the sensitivity is at is I keep a reflective journal yeah I'm I write about things that I think things will they will always still shock me and I do teach the in the fifth year Medical students, we have a day called Health and Wellbeing where we just check in with how, how they're going and I run a session on death and dying. Just give them an opportunity to talk with each other about what it's like to be confronted with so much death and dying and also to get some tools in their belt to help them move forward through that. And so some of those skills are around... Um, them being critically reflective about what what the thing is that's bothering them. Is it that the patient died? Is it that they heard their ribs all crack during the CPR? Is it that the whole team moved away within a minute of this person being declared dead and suddenly they're on to their next patient as though nothing happened? You know, which bit is it yeah. that is upsetting to them? And it might be different for you than it is for me but a lot of that is based around our own assumptions our own values what is an appropriate time to spend mourning the loss of a patient you've just tried to revive so that can be um, useful to ask what those what what is going on here for me and where those sensitivities lie and why is this still a problem for me or why isn't it a problem for me anymore like it still bothers me I've been working there for two and a half years. A lot of our patients are Māori, and right outside the hospital is the main intersection where all of the staff, all of the clinicians, all the hospital staff, and um, we all have to cross this intersection multiple times daily in and out of the hospital. And on that corner, there's always a posse of Māori patients smoking. 
Some of them um, have just had a leg amputated. Some of them are on respiratory assistance machinery and thus smoking. Some, you know, so some of them are. It 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 upsets me that they are really really unwell and that I can't do anything about that. What am I going to do? Go up and say to them, oh, you shouldn't smoke, or, oh, I really hope that your wound heals quickly, or here, try some Manuka honey, or whatever yeah. my belief system may be. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's actually irrelevant in that context. All I can do is sort of sit back and hope that the contribution that I'm making through my teaching, through my research, is going to trickle on down eventually to be able to have some benefit for them but it still remains a difficult point for me that intersection is still a tough intersection that I have to go through every day and confront do you feel like you feel affected by it more now though in terms of that medical gaze that you've been exposed to like I'm like I'm wondering how your sensitivities would differ from another staff at the hospital like what what are your sensitivities as an anthropologist compared to a medical staff member because sometimes i grapple with how i differentiate my perceptions it just comes back to maintaining your curiosity yeah right so it doesn't matter what my system is what my belief system is or my cultural system is when it comes to doing my job as a medical anthropologist and medical educator What matters is that I can see and interpret and make sense of what the culture is that I'm I'm teaching into or that I'm researching and evaluating. So if I was doing research with those people on the corner, that would be one thing. But if if I'm talking to them as people who are patients in the operating theater, then I've got to remain curious to what their experience is in that environment in that moment yeah and what they are bringing to that yes so I guess just reminding myself of that is helpful yeah and you know sort of like always trying to put myself in other people's shoes and think you know it's shitty yeah you know like I'd feel pretty upset if I had had my leg amputated and I'm feeling really, really sick and really, really sick. And I'm probably on morphine, which is making me feel all spaced out. And I'm in a gown that doesn't close properly. And people can probably see my bottom. And it's freezing cold. And I've got to go out to the street as a patient to smoke. Like, can't they just give me a space and give me a bit of dignity? Like that, that yeah. You know, it's pretty, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. So I think... Remaining sensitive to what other people's experiences are helps me to, I don't know, just put one foot forward in front of the other. Because sometimes mm. you do, like sometimes I do step out of the OR and have a moment. Yeah, no good. That's... <laughs> and splash some water on my face and think, oh, thank God I'm not. <laughs> thank God I'm the anthropologist. Because <laughs> I really don't want to have to be in that situation and have to do something useful right now because I can't. <laughs> Mm. Um, and I also really like doing research at a distance, yeah. you know, d- like the, the video distances me from the reality that the people who are in the room are in. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Yes. <laughs> you know, like when we're talking life and death and that's what we're talking. The stakes yeah. are high in this environment Yeah, and they do change rapidly and, and yeah, it is really, really tough what, what 
health professionals deal with on a daily basis is not what most of us even have to think about ever, no. let alone experience ever. So, yeah, definitely fills up my gratitude journal. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got one journal for the reflections. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, like having those yeah. distancing mechanisms can be quite useful yes. to me being productive mm. in this space and being useful in this space is yeah. by me having some distance you know, like being able to get close to the data and being able to distance from the data is really important towards me being able to be analytical about yes. it and to produce something. That's that important. Been, yeah, that has been the biggest lesson for me as well, how to detach enough from my data at a professional level Yeah. to still not lose sensitivity but be as objective as a human can yeah, be. Yeah, I don't think we ever and, lose our compassion for mm, other people. Like we like anthropologists love people. Mm, we love them. We're most of us. Oh, so I I know a few that <laughs> No. No, they love them too. They're kidding themselves. They're all like it's a it's a strange it's a strange form of love, but it's still a love. It's, it's <laughs> sort of like, you know, like when you watch those horror movies and you can't quite look away but you you want to look away but you can't. <laughs> yeah. It's like that with anthropology. (laughs) That's it. That's it. (laughs) We can't help ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, I just gotta. I just gotta know some more. But it's really weird, eh? Like there are times Mm. when I just think, "Wow, I'm in the best job in the world." It's really, really fun and really cool. And especially when I'm doing the simulation stuff, I love it. I love it. And that's not even that. Oh no, you're dealing with real people because you're educating and you're talking to people. Yeah, um, yeah, but just that whole inter interconnection between technology and people, and like I think I was saying to you at lunch, you know, just trying to get the skin color right when yes. we're making the skin on our on our mannequins and stuff, and that can, yeah, you might, that can be um, quite confronting as well because it makes you look at your assumptions around and your belief systems around ethnicity and everything. Yes, can you recap just <laughs> just quickly? Well, you know, like what is what is the color? You know, like if I'm meant to do a Caucasian 60-year-old male, what is that color and how is that color different from a 20-year-old Vietnamese male or a 60-year-old Vietnamese female or, you know, a Maori person or, you know, like is it is it brown enough, is it yellow enough, is it pink enough, is it blue enough? And we've had to ditch whole batches because they were... <laughs> the wrong color <laughs> and wrong it makes skin. you you know it does make you ask yourself questions as an anthropologist you just <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> can't we just we, make them kind of green <laughs> just bypass that all together <laughs> and then your your um, colleagues say no that's not going to increase the fidelity <laughs> anyway it's all oh, good fun all good fun yeah thank you so much for sharing there's just a lot there to keep on building as well because it's quite a new area of yep it's a new I'm a, ethnography I'm a, I'm a frontier i'm on the frontier in my yes. backyard my backyard frontier <laughs> <laughs> may the adventures continue yeah. stay tuned same bat channel same bat place That was it, me and Dr. Tanisha Jowsey. Today's episode was produced by me, Julia Brown, with help from the other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Jody Lee Trembath, and Ian Pollock. Our executive producer is Ian Pollock. 
Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us to make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of any of the references mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet us at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabrow. There's a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening and until next time, keep talking strange.